Thank you to Wildcare and Wildlife Acoustics for sponsoring the Bat Chat podcast. Can you hear that? We can. Wildlife Acoustics creates the world's leading bat acoustic monitoring tools, designed to help scientists make impactful discoveries for our biologically diverse planet, turning this into this. Visit wildlifeacoustics.com to learn more. Wildcare are committed to supporting the ecology industry and are specialists in supplying a large range of monitoring, conservation and habitat management products, as well as equipment hire and service and repair. With a large range of products coupled with friendly and expert help and advice, Wildcare is a favourite supplier for ecologists nationwide. Go to wildcare.co.uk to see the full range and quote BatChat at the checkout for 10% off all bat detectors and bat boxes. Hello, welcome to BatChat from the Bat Conservation Trust, the leading charity in the United Kingdom solely devoted to the conservation of bats and the landscapes on which they rely. This podcast is for anyone who loves bats. We're bringing stories straight to your headphones from the world of bat conservation and from the people out there doing work that furthers our understanding of these magical creatures. I'm Steve Rowe. Professionally, I'm an ecologist, and in my spare time, I'm a trustee of the Bat Conservation Trust. You can join the conversation online using the hashtag BatsChat. That's all one word. This week, we're talking to one of the founders of bat conservation, Tony Hudson. As you'll hear in this episode, which was recorded last summer, we discuss the UK's one and only greater mousehead bat, which resides in Sussex during the winter months. As you might have heard on the news or seen on social media in the last few days, an exciting discovery was made by the bat group this winter, and we've got a quick interview from one of the team involved in that discovery at the end of this episode, so stay tuned. But first, during the summer heatwave back in July, I found myself in a little village just north of Brighton. Walking down the gravel driveway of a house set back from the road, I found the side door wide open and Tony sat at his kitchen table. After a natter over a coffee, we relocated to the summer house in the garden. And my first question to him was how he got into bats and how bat conservation all started in those early days. Yeah, I guess I got involved as a kid really and was interested in first shown my first bats at about age eight or something yeah but then i was particularly impressed with visiting some old mines in kent and seeing bats hibernating there and just thinking wow that's amazing that they're just doing nothing (laughs) for for what seems to like months on end of course at that time we were in and out of these places about 10 times through the winter and yeah taking bats home to have a look at them and what feed of, them and taking them back. Oh, it was sort of Whiskered and Dorbentons. And, and what sort of year are we talking? 1960. Wow. wow. Um, yeah, so we weren't doing them much favours <laughs> at all, really. But yes, it got us interested. And shortly after that, I got a, asked for a job in the Natural History Museum and they hadn't got any vacancies in birds or mammals which is really what I was asking for but they said they could give me a job in entomology so I took that and worked it round to (laughs) working on the ectoparasites of bats particularly yeah and that got me off on quite a few little expeditions around the world (laughs) Um, 
So I acquired quite a bit of experience of bats in that way, really. Elbowing it around bat parasites then. (laughs) (laughs) And were you at the Natural History Museum long? I know you've just finished a book for them, so are you still involved with them? Uh, Not really so much involved with them now. I mean, I I was there for 22 years, but I left, well, 1984, so a long time ago. Yeah. And then in terms of, so I have no real preconception of what bat work was like back then. You know, there were no bat groups. The Bat Conservation Trust wasn't a thing. The Wildlife and Countryside Acts hadn't been created. You know, what was bat work like back then? Were there bat detectors, you know? Well, yeah, I guess um, bat detectors were introduced in the first ones appeared in about the mid-60s and the first portable things late late 60s uh-huh. um, and everybody thought that pretty quickly they'd be developed to the point where we could identify any bat that was flying past but still haven't quite achieved <laughs> that I don't think <laughs> um, there was I mean mist nets were fairly recent introduction mm-hmm. by then so there was relatively few people using mist nets and most of the techniques were just looking at bats inside roosts or inside hibernation sites, mm. I guess. Very little field work as such. And did you have a... Obviously, you were involved in that process of um, getting bat groups started and, and uh, the, the precursor to the Bat Conservation Trust, which was... The bat Groups of Britain, was it called? Um, was that Did that come about because you'd recognised that bats had declined or was it purely out of a, a natural history interest sort of thing? I think it was, yeah, I mean, there was a strong appreciation that bats had declined and there were some initial efforts to get them protected um, in the mid-70s. Mm. Um, but only two species were included in the Wild Creatures and Wild Plants Act. Mm. I think that was what it called. Yeah. Um, but... Increasing evidence was accumulating, and so that's eventually got all got protected in 1981. Um, by that time, there were quite a few odd bat groups scattered around the country, but then there was a big initiative to try and develop more of them. Yeah, and people like me and Henry were running around the country trying to set up bat groups through local trusts or other organisations, um, and that was going surprisingly well, really. <laughs> <laughs> and just how much work and effort was there involved in changing public attitudes and getting bats protected in, in those early years? Oh, I mean, it was a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, in fact, that was one of the main drives, although it was surprising even then to find how many people there were out there who actually... Quite like bats, really. That oh. um, it wasn't so difficult to give people a bit of information about bat- bats that they didn't understand to make them appreciate that they didn't really need to destroy them or their roost. <laughs> <laughs> so after you were involved in just getting that legislation starting to change um, and BCT was in its early days, what happened after that? How did momentum keep going? Well, I suppose that, that was before BCT, really. So um, it was the Fauna and Flora Preservation Society which felt there was a need to initiate a, 
of NGO to sort of help with that conservation and help implement the legislation, really. Yeah. And uh, so John Burton, who was the executive secretary, approached me and asked me if I felt like taking on that sort of role. Um, but meanwhile, we'd had organised a little meeting to try and disgage the interest around the country. Yeah. Organised a meeting at the London Zoo, which had 250 seats in its auditorium, to get people to come along, hear what had been going on with bats and what might go on yeah. in the future. And that meeting was booked out overnight almost. Mm-hmm. And so we did the meeting on the Saturday, did it again on Sunday <laughs> for another lot of people. <laughs> that was pretty remarkable and made everybody convinced that, that there was good justification to get a project going. And so it developed from there. We had a small project based with FFPS that was working with government bodies and and other NGOs and organising the sort of so-called Bat Groups of Britain, which was a committee that linked all the national Bat Groups together. Um, and then funding got a bit tricky after about six years, the way it does. Yeah. Um, and so there was a secret, and FFPS was thinking it would have to abandon the project or something. So there was a secret little meeting held in the Natural History Museum's basement of the Natural History Museum that said, no, we're going to set up a separate organisation. So that's what happened that year. The Pat Conservation Trust was registered and um, had its first AGM in 1991, I think. The rest is history, I guess. (laughs) And how many members of staff did it have back then in those early days? Oh, well, at the FFPS days, it was three, I guess. Hmm. Um, so there was me, and then there was somebody brought in, really as a London Black Project Officer with funding from GLC. But yeah. a lot of what he did, this is Simon Mickleborough, yeah, a lot of what he did was relevant nationally, that sort of thing. So there was that. And then we had a... National Bat Year in 1986 and got somebody in, Joan Tate came in to to do that and we sort of brought in other old volunteers and so on to help out. Um, And that went pretty well and Joan stayed with us after that so it was three there. And then when it came to setting up the BCT office in 1991 it was a bit dodgy. I mean, we had about three months' money for two members of staff or something. Right at the beginning, we got this anonymous donation of 25,000 quid, which made us feel a little more comfortable, but, um, and then managed to start getting other grants in. And it's, uh, I suppose it was only about six or seven people in the office even by 2000 when I left whereas now I don't know it's around 30-40ish I think something like that yeah Yeah. 
So do we? We still don't know who that anonymous donor was, do we? we no. No, I mean usually you know bodies know what where their anonymous donations come from, but no, we never never found the source of that. <laughs> Have suspicions, but no, <laughs> no evidence at all. And what do you think it is now that BCT does best? Does it do best? Mm. Well, I guess the monitoring program. I'm very pleased about that. That's going seems to be going really well. Yeah. Um, nice to see things like that's in Church's project. I do worry about the sort of uh, restriction in the scope of roost visits and things like that. I think that's probably one of my major concerns is limitations on what qualifies for a free visit that I feel that, that as it worked originally was one of the most important factors in the conservation of bats mm. not just for those individuals who were visited but in the, they would then pass on information there were people who would otherwise never have come into contact with nature yeah. conservation well, am I right in saying you were one of the founder members of the Sussex Bat Group? Have I got that right? Yeah. Yes. So tell us a bit about the Sussex Bat Group, because I'm not from this area at all. I don't know anything about it. So give us a flavour of what what have been the milestones in its history and what sort of work it does now compared to when you first set it up. Ooh, I don't know about the <laughs> milestones in its history. <laughs> um, it, it currently has about 220, 250 members, I think, although not, of course... Many of that many of them are active in the field. Yeah. And there's a lot of monitoring of roosts going on, particularly hibernation sites and mm. other kinds of occasional surveys and so on. Um, a lot of taking bats into care for rehabilitation, that kind of thing, which has produced some quite interesting results. Um, I mean, Sussex generally has a well, all the UK species have been recorded in Sussex. Show off. <laughs> <laughs> I think we can claim to be the only county that can claim that. Uh, there's also four other species that have been recorded here. So it is quite in a terms of vac- You mean in terms of vagrants? Yeah. 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 Very good. And you mentioned hibernation surveys. Um, so I guess now's a good time to, to elbow in the the UK's only greater mouse bat. Do you want to give us the story about how you discovered it and a bit about its roost site and what we now know about that individual? Um, oh, well, I came in a bit late in the original story. So the, there was a population found in Sussex in 1969, um, and that was probably between 30 and 40 animals. Mm. Um, something happened in... 1974, because most of the females didn't come back to the... We only knew where they were hibernating. Right. And they didn't come back. And then the remnant population just drifted away. Um, There was two left in 1981, uh, one left in 85, and none by uh, 1990. Mm. And that 1991, 1991 was when it was officially declared extinct, wasn't it? Which I yeah, think was the first yeah. 
mammals go extinct in Britain since the wolf back in the 18th century. That's the yeah. figure that's in all the books. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And then, I mean, well, we never quite knew whether they might be lurking around somewhere, but these sites where we'd been finding them were good sites, really, and we were monitoring quite a lot of sites and not finding anything at all. So I'm pretty sure it had disappeared. Mm. But then one was found in Bogner in 2000, I think, 2001. And it was an old female that had never bred. And it had one wing much longer than the other one. So <laughs> it was a bit of a strange animal. And then the next year, 2002, we found one hibernating again. And that was a young male of that year. And so I assumed that was going to be a pioneer of a recolonization mm. because the species had been declining heavily through the 60s, 70s in northwest Europe and was showing a bit of a comeback by then. Um, but nothing ever happened. This bat just came back on its own. Mm-hmm. Ringed it in that first year and came back every year until oh, 2020. And then it was missing. So we assumed it had gone. And then we weren't able to check the following year reasons of covid but then when they went back this winter there it was again so it hasn't quite gone yet but and that's a lone individual male bat yeah and it's what sort of roost type is it without giving the location away oh it's an old disused tunnel yeah railway tunnel and was it was it was that a site that you were monitoring regularly before it turned up or did you just happen to go in there it was the same site as they previously occurred yeah Oh, one of the same sites. Previously, they'd been in two neighbouring sites, and um, this was in one of those. And that also led to feelings that perhaps it was a relic from the old, that there was a little population that had mm. carried on out there somewhere, but I, I really don't think so now. No? I think it was just a one-off. Oh. Yeah. So, if that, so, yeah, I mean, have, is that thought because you've done lots of survey work and you've got no other evidence there? Yeah. Yeah, so there's quite a lot of sites that are regularly monitored in Sussex and neighbouring parts of Hampshire as well, and nothing. There's a number of those are good sites for mouse bats, so I really think that it's on its own. Which is, a, which is a shame. I mean, what are your thoughts? Is there a way that we could get that species back into Britain? Um, oh, I don't know. We had all sorts of discussions early on about introducing animals, and then there were all the issues of trying to of uh, quarantine and yeah. all the other issues that made that difficult, really. Um, and originally, I thought when this one turned up that we'd radio tag it and try and find out where it was in the summer so that we could search around to see if there were others there uh, and I even had a guy local guy here with a plane who was happy to fly up and down Sussex yeah. looking for it if we could tag it but oh. <laughs> again there were sort of difficulties turned up and didn't do it then and I just think it's much too late now really it's not going to tell us very much I don't think so I, I, my feeling is that Probably the species will come back yeah. sooner or later. 
on its own. And you think that the habitats here are okay for it now? Yeah, nothing. Yeah. yeah. I think there's plenty of reasonable habitat. Certainly plenty of hibernation sites available. Nice country houses for it to roost in and that sort of thing. And your your activity in that tunnel over those years inspired a play uh, well, yes. in London, which I went to see, actually. Did you go and see oh, it? Yes. Yeah. yeah, I thought that was really weird. That, <laughs> that was quite an interesting play. Yeah. And, yeah, we went and, and we were able to have... A, I've, I've got the script for the play, actually. Mm. And we went and had a drink with the writer and director yeah, yeah. and that sort of thing. Good. And that was quite interesting. <laughs> and they were looking for other places to put it on or did think about but it was well in London it was in some again sort of like disused railway mm-hmm. tunnels really yeah it was yeah vaults under Waterloo station which worked well I thought it worked quite well it, was, it worked very well in terms of staging yeah. so yeah. I did inquire as to whether they could put it on in the Brighton sewers which are sort of the old Victorian yeah. sewers are open to the public now and again didn't get very far with that <laughs> so this afternoon I'm off to meet some of the members of the Sussex Bat Group at another new discovery the first greater horseshoe roost maternity roost found in Sussex for about 100 years can you tell us about some of the work you've done with horseshoes in that time and how the discovery came about and did you think horseshoes were in the county before that roost was found Um, well we knew they were the world ones around the county. The, the the first one was about 1975 in these same railway tunnels. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we'd had odd records through the years from then, but in the last 10 or 15 years, there seemed to be increasing frequency and perhaps slightly increasing numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's part of a little job for the National Trust. I went through all the records and compiled a little report and it was sort of, it had been bugging me up till then anyway. But I just felt there was something going on here and we had records from about six or seven sites, yeah. all within quite a small area, including and we'd been ringing them in these tunnels mm. um, and including ring bats in a number of these other sites been reported mm. so I just felt more and more convinced that there was some little breeding colony yeah. tucked away somewhere in Sussex and then had no idea how we were going to find it <laughs> and just fortuitously turned up in 2019 um, and you know in that time we've had steadying increase in the number of records mm. in winter right. which did further suggest that there's something going on. Mm. But, but, yeah, generally the species has been pretty widely recorded around the southeast up until the mid-50s. I don't think there'd been a breeding roost known for about 100 years, oh. but it had been recorded. Um, but actually, I couldn't find anything pre-1975 for Sussex, except mm. one record supposedly of the Greater Horseshoe uh, found on the sail of a boat off Brighton <laughs> in, in about the turn of the turn of the last century. Yeah. Um, so yeah, interesting species. Mm. 
Um, and, you know, the Everest is, what, 100 kilometres from the nearest one in, in Dorset. So we see it as a potential to... We, we started look, shopping around for organisations to take on the responsibility that we felt the back group couldn't do. Mm. Um, it's what our trust said, yeah, we'll do it. Very helpful. So good to them, yeah. And when the broadcaster Chris Packham came on the show oh, uh, back in 2019 now, he said, he said that bat science didn't develop that quickly compared to other mammal species from when he first saw his first bats back in the 60s for a whole number of reasons. Tony, why do you think it's lagged behind other wildlife? Um, you know, I'm sort of thinking about the amount of stuff that we know for our, say, bird populations in comparison. Oh, I guess it's just um, difficulties of study, really. And, and, yeah, I mean, there was precious little information, even up to the, the evidence that was put to, for introducing the Wildlife Countryside Act was pretty thin, really. I got involved in doing stuff towards the Habitats Agreement. Yeah. Um, that wasn't very robust either, really. <laughs> But, but I mean, now I think, the, yeah, the, and in fact, with what with the Habitats Directive and um, the Eurobats, the sort of agreement on conservation of bats in Europe, um, that was what prompted the government to stick up a load of money to develop the National Bat Monitoring Program. Yeah. Which is very pleased to say is still going well, mm. really. Yeah. And also, I mean, all. All the other gizmo that's out there has really made enormous advances in bat research and conservation. And what's what's your view on the state of bat conservation at the moment? What do you think is done really well, and in which areas do you think it could be improved? Oh dear, <laughs> um, be as controversial as you like. <laughs> no, I don't know. I mean, I think it's, I think it's, it's well. I left the BCT twenty years ago now, but. Um, Things have changed a lot over that that period that I was there, or with the initially with the Fauna Flora Preservation Society project, where our emphasis then was on things like timber treatment chemicals and other kinds of pesticides and other issues that really aren't of major moment these days, and um, so much more concern about general habitat damage and development and so on. Yeah. Do you have a favourite, almost notable memory of working with bats in all those years? Certainly some little incidents abroad <laughs> in the tropics of getting myself in a bit of a mess with bats in the field. But um, here, I mean, uh, I've enjoyed working with serotine bats in particular and been running a um, sort of long-term ringing project, which has produced some useful data. I think, I suppose, the mouse finding the mouse bat was quite extraordinary. And there were normally there'd be six of us on one of these monitoring counts. On that occasion, there was four, and one of them was actually a visitor from Siberia, who was the only person with a camera there at the time. And who, well, for him, that was 
perhaps the least interesting of the bats he was seeing that day. <laughs> so we were all getting very excited. Yeah. You mentioned there getting yourself into a, into a pickle in the tropics. Where were you and what sort of thing were you doing? Oh, I don't know. Quite a lot, a lot in Africa and Indian Ocean Islands and Central and South America, really. Yeah. Um, but yes, quite nice, nice places and some nice bats and, yeah. and some pretty mad. There was one expedition to Ecuador to look at a cave that, according to von Daniken, who wrote whole series of books in the 70s about visitors we'd had from outer space mm-hmm. described this cave that had been built by thermonuclear drills 4,000 years ago in Ecuador um, somebody thought we'd better go and have a look at it <laughs> mounted a large expedition with a team of 16 cave biologists and uh, cavers and doctors and Neil Armstrong came along. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I don't know what his role was quite, but he, he was a geographer, geologist and caver. So, yeah, that was quite interesting. And do you still manage to get out and do much bat work these days? No, I'm not doing so much at the moment. I think sort of got out of the habit a bit in uh, COVID times. And yeah. Having a few little sort of health issues now, so not getting around much at the moment, but still trying to get out now and again. Yeah. And what do you think we can do to attract the next generation into getting into bat conservation? I don't quite know what we can do, but I'm, I know it's very important. And um, yeah, I mean that's the, the way that I got in was through, as a kid, joined the London Natural History Society, um, became a bird ringer at the age of 14 or something, and joined the Mammal Society when we were 14, I think. And those organisations were quite welcoming. Um, I'm not sure that most of the organisations now are geared towards that kind of looking after and encouraging youngsters. But well, I suppose we also had a lot more freedom to travel around on our own or in a little group or whatever. So I guess, yeah, it's just getting them out there. I mean, if you get them out there, they get very enthusiastic. And what do you think will be the, the bigger challenges for bat conservation in the future, apart from getting the younger generation involved? What do you think are going to be the, the challenges of the future? Oh, I suppose things like climate change and... Um, all the standard kinds of things, development and habitat loss must be the major threats um, and monitoring those changes in patterns and populations is really really a, mm. a key issue I guess yeah. yeah, I was listening on the way down here I was listening to the World Wildlife Funds podcast and their latest episode is all about climate change. Um, mm-hmm. So, finally, what message would you give to everyone listening to the show now who's involved in bat conservation? What what one message would come from Tony Hudson? <laughs> Where do you get these questions? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I don't know, just carry on out there and get do what you can to help help bats and in the I mean there's all sorts of various ways that people do get involved with bats and can help bats and that's good. I mean there's fourteen hundred species out there to <laughs> worry about. <laughs> yeah. Out there and do it. Yeah. Great stuff. Tony Hudson, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to Tony for sitting down with me. He's full of anecdotes, and if you're ever lucky enough to meet him, do have a chat with him. So as you heard there, for the last 20 years or so, one single greater mouse-head bat has been recorded hibernating in a disused railway tunnel near the south coast by Sussex Bat Group. Then on the 14th of January this year, a second individual was recorded during the annual survey. Ryan Greaves has been on Bat Chat before. You can hear him in the Net Rewilding Estate episode. A couple of days ago, I caught up with Ryan over the phone, who was one of the team who saw this second bat. Um, so thank you for coming on the show. It's the second time you've been on the show, Ryan. Obviously, listeners heard you back on the Net Rewilding episode, so thanks for coming back on. We've just heard from Tony about the history of the Greater Mouseid bat, and Tony said he thinks the species will come back on its own accord, which obviously seems to have happened in this last couple of weeks. When did you guys make the discovery and how many people got to see this bat firsthand? Uh, so we, we did our, the first of our sort of hibernation checks uh, on the 14th of January, so a few weeks ago. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so it was a team of uh, five of us. Um, and there's basically a series of tunnels that are connected that uh, aren't used for trains anymore. So there was one team that went to a different site and we went to this particular site um and and yeah we weren't expecting to see it they, they've never that species has never been found in that tunnel before so yeah it was it was a bit mind-blowing and jaw-dropping to see it um so yeah we were quite excited but obviously had to contain our excitement not to disturb anything and, and yeah so it was yeah really exciting no i didn't realize it was in a different tunnel i thought it was in the same tunnel that you normally find it in so are you sure that it's the that there is a second individual greater mouse seed and not the original one that's just lost its ring say yeah that was our, our slight fear so we sort of <laughs> held our breath and, and hoped that the other team had found um had found him and and they had so it was we were recording at the same time and it was great. clearly hibernating so yeah and um, certainly a second bat no oh, that's great stuff and is the feeling that it's a resident of Sussex or that it's come across from the channel, presumably the chances of it ending up in the same railway tunnel if it's a migrant are pretty slim, but like you say, it's a slightly different tunnel, so. Yeah, I, we're, we're, yeah, I, I would think it's probably a resident, but yeah, we're not we're not 100% sure at the minute as they are a big bat and, and they can travel quite long distances to find hibernation sites, so um, potentially it is has come across the channel but uh, either way um yeah fingers crossed there's more more to come that's great and in terms of doing more surveys have you got more plans coming up later in february yeah so we've got a check uh again uh, sort of midway through february and and hoping that it, the bats will be there again uh and yeah we might be able to find out whether it's a, a male or female because that would be quite useful to know but yeah um we're, we're gonna going to keep our fingers crossed that it stays nice and cold and, and <laughs> still there <laughs> so how exciting was it when you first saw it very exciting it wasn't me who spotted it um uh, jess who's our um uh membership secretary she uh she spotted it and she said oh that's a big bat and, uh, <laughs> and, and uh, certainly is a big bat yeah we were sort of looking at some door bentons on the wall and she just sort of shined her torch up and and it was yeah as i said a sort of jaw-dropping moment you're like 
wow, that is uh, the mouse here. And then, yeah, just waiting to see that it wasn't the usual one who's just, you know, scraped off his ring or something. So, yeah, it's definitely a second bat. So, yeah, very exciting. Very, very exciting. That's brilliant. How excited were the, uh, were the other team when you told them? Yes, all very excited and all really keen to tell Tony. That was what everyone was thinking. <laughs> I can't wait to ring Tony. So, yeah, I think he's excited too. Great stuff. Ryan, thanks for that update. Pleasure. To read more, head to the show notes where you'll find a link to our news article on this exciting discovery. Now, just a reminder, we want you to leave the show a voicemail. Tell us about your local bats, a special bat sighting you had last year, or a site you think everyone should visit to go and watch bats. Maybe you have a question or you want advice on where to go and see a particular bat species. Whatever your experience with bats, we really want to hear from you, so do get in touch. The voicemail link is in the show notes, and don't worry, you can hear your message back and re-record it if you don't like it before sending it to us. Messages can be up to 90 seconds long, and we can't wait to hear from you. Join us next time when we're on the banks of the River Thames. See you then. Now, lots of you have seen me in branded t-shirts and hoodies with the Batchat logo on, and you've all been asking me when they'll be available. Well, we're thrilled to let you know that a whole range of Batchat clothing and tote bags is now available for you on our T-Mill store. The link's in the show notes. Whether you're a long-time supporter or a new member of the Batchat family, we can't wait for you to share your photos of you wearing our merch on social media. Be sure to tag the Bat Conservation Trust in your posts. If you're listening to Batchat on Google Podcasts, we wanted to let you know that Google have announced they plan to discontinue their app later this year, so we recommend making the switch to an alternative podcast app, and we've put some links in the show notes to alternative apps that you can follow Batchat on so that you don't miss any future episodes.